0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 54 of the Common Descent podcast, and happy Darwin Day! Happy Darwin Day. Darwin Day is, of course, a celebration of science, specifically the life and successes and scientific contributions of one Charles Darwin. You may recall that back on episode 28 last year around Darwin Day, we did a special episode about Charles Darwin. Made sense. With special guest Dr. Sarah Bray, this time, today's episode is about a lesser-known man named Alfred Russell Wallace. Second verse slightly different than the first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wallace is the other guy, right? The fa- Famously, the story goes, Darwin spent like 30 years slowly and meticulously putting together this wacky idea of descent with modification by means of natural selection as the mechanism for evolutionary processes. And then he got a letter one day from a young upstart, from an upstart young man in Southeast Asia somewhere that said, <laughs> well, hey, Mr. Darwin. Gee, gee willikers, Mr. Darwin. <laughs> I had this I had this crazy idea that I came up with all by this myself. This idea. And Darwin went, <laughs> So that's who we're talking about today Wallace is a fascinating figure uh, Legitimately also arrived at the same Broad evolutionary hypothesis Yeah Really interesting guy A lot of uh, really excellent scientific work And we are thrilled to announce That we will, once again After the news break Be joined by Dr. Sarah Bray Who is a biologist And Darwin etc enthusiast and one of the hosts of a podcast called discovering darwin which is one of my favorite podcasts i love <laughs> discover they, they do such a good job it's a lot of fun this topic was also suggested uh, this this uh, overshadowed man by greta on facebook and by one of our patrons sean so thank you to greta and sean
1: yeah
2: thanks for giving wallace some of the limelight guys
0: yeah we'll do a whole episode about him now just for you in case you don't know, by the way, listeners, Darwin Day is on February 12th, a celebration of the birthday of Darwin. This year is the 210th birthday, I believe,
2: He's getting up of there.
0: Darwin. So check your local museums and universities and such, because I bet those nerds are doing something fun. They usually have something cool going on. We're doing something fun at the museum. We have so many people coming to the museum, it's going to be awesome. That's fantastic. I can't wait. If any of you are listening, by the way, are in the East Tennessee area, come to the Gray Fossil site on February 9th. Which is actually going to be the day that this releases. So you know what? Never mind. <laughs>
2: Moving Listen on. To this on the way Listen there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you if you caught this, the if morning you're listening of to this release, now, turn around quick, quick <laughs> wherever, go over wherever there. you're going, quickly. <laughs> to gray, you must go. <gasps> the switch on the wall behind you.
0: <laughs> now, some announcements before we get started. We always have a co- at least a couple of announcements, as always. This podcast, the support that allows us to pay to host the podcast, to pay for this wonderful equipment we're using, to pay for some exciting things that are coming up soon, Mm -hmm. that will be discussed in future episodes, comes from our patrons on Patreon. Huge thanks to our patrons, as always. This is the first episode in a very long time where we actually don't have any new shoutouts to say this episode. That's not to say we haven't had new patrons. We have. They just haven't been at the level that you get shout-outs. But you silent benefactors, thank you. We thank you greatly. Behind the scenes. The people behind the people. (laughs) If you are not a patron, think about it. Because there's a lot of cool behind-the-scenes extra stuff you get. And indeed, patrons, within the next several weeks, we're going to be making some changes to the goodies offered on Patreon. We're not taking anything away. We will be adding stuff, changing things. The 2019 update. The 2019 <laughs> patch, the Patreon <laughs> patch. It's going to be better than ever, so keep your eyes out for that. I think that's all the announcements. We should yeah. mention, by the way, that as we are recording this news section, right at this very moment, somewhere on this very planet, the Super Bowl is
2: happening. Yeah, people are uh, throwing a, a, a weird-shaped ball. It's around. covered in pig or something? Mm-hmm. That's got
0: it's got la- like, laces out, <laughs> laces, laces <That's>, out, <laughs> out. That's two Ace Ventura references in like a minute. <laughs> this is what we're doing on Super Bowl Sunday. Thanks for joining us, nerds.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, that's enough introduction. Let's get on to the news. Every episode, we choose a couple of news articles from recent paleontology, evolutionary science, life history study, and bring them to you because that's fun. And
2: now I'd like to turn it over to Will at the news desk. Will? Hi, everybody. I have some news about Mises. (laughs) There has been a recent published paper about an extensive experiment with field mice, deer mice, to be precise, that has been able to observe the effects of natural selection in multiple populations, as well as isolate the gene apparently responsible. That is a very fitting news bit for this episode's topic. It's awesome. So the research we're looking at is by Barrett et al. And published in Science. And the article we'll be linking to is by Ed Young in The Atlantic. So the natural selection concept they're looking at is not an easy thing to get as a big picture. Typically, most natural selection experiments and research uh, studies are can only focus on one part, you know, isolate the gene that relates to a feature, but not actually observe that gene affected by natural selection. Right. The other thing that typically happens is you usually can see side effects, but you're not usually able to get down to the nitty-gritty causes because you weren't there while it was happening. The common and popular version of this is the light and dark moths. Yeah, the peppered peppered moths. Mm -hmm. In the industrial evolution that... As soot covered the bark of the trees, the light moths who used to survive on the light bark were now picked off by predators as the rarer dark moths became more successful. right. And so that's watching the process of selection happen, but you're not seeing what's being selected. You're not finding the actual genetic causes. You're not finding what in the genome is changing because we didn't do genetic studies on that back then. This aims to do both of that and more. So the animals they looked at are deer mice. These are small rodents that have naturally a variety of coat colors, lighter and darker, browner and blonder, so on and so forth. The mice also live on different, slightly different ecosystems. Uh, They live on, you know, grassy hills, but also sandier hills. And the sandier hills are typically lighter colored sand and the grassy hills typically have darker dirt, darker earth. So they have different environments that they naturally live on. So the idea, much like the pepper moths, that lighter coated mice would survive better on the sand and the darker coated mice would survive better on the dirt is obvious. Yeah, makes sense. But just because it makes sense doesn't mean that's good enough answer. Right. And that's kind of the point they tried to make with this is that's been something we've always talked about being a thing that happens to animals, but very... It's been very few times that people have actually observed it happen, observed a population split because of how they match their habitat. And that's that's something that they aim to do. So they began the long process in 2010 in Nebraska of setting up six 164 square foot enclosures. Wow. <laughs> three on the dark soil and three on the sandy soil, went into the enclosures and removed all the mice that weren't deer mice, and all the rattlesnakes, and then caught 500 extra deer mice from the surrounding area and distributed them among each habitat, each of the enclosures. So that now they had six relatively equal split between light and dark habitats, equal variation in the coat color, and equal sizes, you know, roughly. This is the kind of thing that most scientists these days do on the computer. Exactly. This is a (laughs) huge undertaking. They not only collected all these mice, they took DNA samples, photographed, and radio chipped each mouse. Wow. So this was thorough, thorough, thorough. Yeah. And then for the next few years, (laughs) they monitored the population to observe any changes that happened. Within the first few months, expectedly, a lot of the mice died. Hunted by owls yeah. and other predators, mostly. Not one, you know, they removed the snakes because they didn't want to enclose them with the predators. But aerial right. predators, you can't do that. And they still wanted there to be predation. Right. So, also, I assume snakes are going to be less fooled by the visual
0: camouflage.
2: Yeah. As they yeah. are
0: less visual hunters than your birds of prey.
2: Yeah, especially those, those, those rascally pit vipers. With their infrared vision. (laughs) With their predator vision. Now, after the few months, they collected and surveyed the survivors, or went through and collected in each habitat, and immediately noticed that the average coloration of coats of the survivors had leaned toward uh, lighter coats in the sandy environments and darker coats in the dark soil environments. As predicted. As predicted. And then they took the next step. And this is where this study goes from, really impressive to really awesome. Other people have been, have quoted that most studies would stop there and that would be good enough to actually show yeah. that that was a successful and pertinent selection pressure. But then they sequenced a specific gene, the agouti gene, which was already known to con- be connected to fur color. So this was a previously identified gene. So they took it from <laughs> all 481 remaining mice, and sequence <laughs> this gene. <laughs> wow. And they found seven mutations that had become more common in the lighter populations than in the darker, where they had become less common. Before the experiment, these mutations were equally dispersed among all the populations.
0: How cool to watch both the phenotypic and genotypic changes in the same experiment. And it gets better. What? Go on.
2: <laughs> they identified one specific mutation that seemed to be the main culprit. The Delta Ser, S-E-R. Delta Ser was the ma- the mutation that seemed to have the largest effect. So they took that, engineered it into normal lab mice, and they grew with lighter coats. <laughs> so they didn't just find it, but they confirmed that that was the effect. And
0: that's how you do that. Yes. And I think that this, this is... This might not be common knowledge that we can't look at a gene and know what it does. We have to yeah. take it and put it in an animal and see what happens. They don't have little descriptors next to them. So that, I guess, was them confirming that it wasn't just... Because, it. yeah, you. It's, it's safe to infer that that change tracked the coat color, but now you
2: absolutely know that that is what that gene was doing. There is zero doubt. And this also completely confirms that these mutations were the ones being selected for and against by natural selection in this scenario. What a cool experiment. It's so thorough. It's And they have a huge description on the nightmare of setting up the enclosure. So oh, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so many things of the mice fitting through the cracks so they had to pour concrete into the gaps Jeez. of the joints. And then snow <laughs> drifts pushing up against the wall. It's an wow. amazing study item number 151 on today's glitch list it was one of my favorite moments was a quote by barrett who said utter ignorance was a good thing in this study he's saying because <laughs> until this point he had only worked with small fish and as he puts it anyone who had worked with mice would have never attempted this <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's all, like like if you had gone to mice people, they would have just been like, no, 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 do it on the computer. Yeah, what are you crazy? <laughs> I would love to see this team of people. I I I really hope that they finished this publication and went. So what other animals have we never worked with? <laughs> yep,
2: yep. I get it. I, I picture them when they were fr- back in 2010 starting it and going up to like some lab mice people and asking them questions. They go, you sort sure of seem to have a lot of questions. What are you trying to do? Oh, well, explains experiment. <laughs> all right. Goodbye now. And yeah. Walks off all happy. And they're just like, poor, poor soul.
0: Those, <laughs> those poor soul. Do you think it'll work? It'll take a miracle. that's so cool
2: it was just that's so and it's one of those where I didn't make this paradigm shifting discovery but this is one of the first times where they've been able to on a large scale observe natural selection and confirm its effect which is important and this
0: is also like classic experimental setup yes made a prediction tested that prediction confirmed it with multi you know, went multiple stages in like that
2: folks, that's science. That this is this is the the golden and it really is a golden example of science because not only was it done very well, but they also included all the hiccups and and nightmares <laughs> of I, trying to run an a un, a yet undone experiment. <laughs> I am going to read this paper. It was so much fun. I really want to read it. That's super cool. There's multiple sources, and they both start out slightly different, and I couldn't decide which one was the better version of the story. So feel free to look this up and read it on different places, because it's great. This one starts with him in a bar. Very nice. (laughs) Very nice.
0: (laughs) Well, my first news piece is not an experiment at all, but a description of a new, very, very strange creature. Since we're talking about natural selection and the weird things it does... This is a report of a Triassic reptile, so you already know that it's going to be weird, that has an unusual body shape that is strikingly similar in some ways to a platypus. Huh. Get ready. This is <laughs> research by Long Chung et al. in Scientific Reports, which is open access, so you can read it. And the article we are going to be linking to is from our commonly cited uh, journalist, Laura Gegel, on live science. Researchers have described two new specimens of a reptile named Eretmo ripus caroldongae. Bless you. From the lower Triassic, the early Triassic, that is, of China. This is a species of reptile that has been known before, but only from partial skeletons mm.
1: that were headless.
0: We had never seen the skull of this animal before, so what we knew about it was that it was about 70 centimeters long, or, you know, not quite two and a half feet so uh, that's a pretty small animal with a rigid body and tail and four large flippers. Ah. So this was a swimming animal, an aquatic reptile. It also has these triangular bony plates along its back, kind of like Stegosaurus. Cool. Very strange. It is not one of the big groups of, of marine reptiles of the Mesozoic. It is, belongs to a group called the Hupesuchians which are the sister group, the close relatives of ichthyosaurs. Oh. The the dolphin-like ones that we talked a bit about in episode 51, just a bit.
2: They went a slightly different
0: direction. They did. Now that's what we knew about it. One of the new specimens that these researchers describe has a skull. And there's a lot of very interesting things about the skull. First thing that jumps right out is that its skull is comically small. (laughs) it's got this rigid body these big broad flippers and then this tiny little head perched between its shoulders (laughs) even for the size of its head it has very very small eyes the orbits are much reduced interesting and this is fascinating right off the bat because having very small eyes means that it probably had very poor vision in general the bigger your eyes the better your vision reduced eyes you tend to see in animals that live in the dark or that are not using their eyes to get around
2: this is why nice cameras have those giant lenses
0: yes it also and i learned this reading this in water according to these researchers the smaller your head the harder time you have hearing things oh
2: that completely makes sense but i i don't think i ever would have just made that connection yep because (laughs)
0: sound localization is harder in the water Bigger heads are better for hearing, and this animal doesn't show any evidence of a specialized ear structure, so it probably also didn't have very good hearing, which leads to the question of what were they doing? Running into stuff.
2: Just the thump, thump. <laughs> nope,
0: nope, there we go. Which is exacerbated by the fact that their snout is split into what are called crura. Now, I don't know how many of our listeners have ever seen a platypus skull. I think Will has seen a platypus skull, because we have yeah, one in the, have. the collections. The platypuses, the bones of the platypus's snout look like the mandibles of a big scary beetle. Yes. And they're like two hooks with a gap in the middle. Mm-hmm. The the, but the face is not shape like that, right? That is covered with a bill. But the skull is like these two hooks. Those are called crura, the left and right crura. This animal had that. It's awesome. Similar split- and even, like the platypus, had a strange bone in the middle of it that was probably uh, supported by cartilage. And we don't know what that was doing, but it ha- it's it got the same face structure as platypuses, which is really weird. That's cool. So they were wondering if this animal was perhaps living like a platypus. Now, platypuses, you know, sniff around on the, the bottom of their watery abodes, mm-hmm. and they're using, I believe... You know, mechanical sense, but also they're electroreceptive. Yes. One of the only n- non fish to do that. Yes, indeed. So the researchers investigated a little more of the animal's senses of, of Eretmo ripus, this ancient reptile. They found no specialized structure for smelling, and indeed pointed out that because of the, the structure of its nose, it probably wasn't a good smeller. It did not have a vomeronasal fenestra which is to say a gap in the skull bones that opens into the vomeronasal organ, which is, if you think of a snake, when they flick their tongue out and collect sense, that's where they're dropping that off
1: Mm -hmm. to be
0: sensed by that organ. Snakes do it, some lizards do it. This animal did not have that capability, it seems, so it probably wasn't tongue flicking or anything like that. So they conclude that it was most likely tactilely sensing things. It was searching for things by its sense of feel. We do not have any evidence one way or the other as to whether or not it was electro-receptive. I don't know of any fossil proxy for that. And also, I, if I remember right, the, the the study said that that has not been observed in reptiles. Yeah. yeah. So it which... would be, it's not out of the question, but
2: it it would be a strange thing. Then again, yeah. it's like a platypus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's following a good role model if it's going for setting strange precedents. <laughs> that... That's very interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, they conclude that it was probably foraging
0: for small critters like arthropods and stuff, perhaps in low-light environments.
2: Makes sense. That's... Fac- the fact that it's so similar is just completely stunning. Like It's so weird. It's a weird thing to <laughs> con- uh, convergently evolve, and it's also a unexpected to see a reptile do it so closely to... A mammal. It's like striking. That, that is really, really interesting. And it is, it's one of those where, you know, were Jurassic Park to make it, it would absolutely have the electroreceptors. Of but course. It would just electricity. It because <laughs> those are literally skin deep. Like electro-receptor, electroreceptors, even on like sharks, are just the outer layer of skin. You know, mm-hmm. there's not big organs. So it'd be almost impossible to identify just the fact that it is using so many of the similar body designs of big paddled feet and the low eyesight. It did not have a paddly tail. It had a short tail. Well, you
0: you win some, you lose some. I like that you said that it went a different way from it's (laughs) like the sister group, the ichthyosaurs went dolphin shaped. And this group was like, hey, we have an idea. (laughs) I bet bet this is going to be a winner.
2: (laughs) (laughs) See, I get a picture of them. (laughs) Like if ever... We figure out how to, like, t- time travel these animals to today. They're going to get here and be like, Well, you got... D- they stole our thing!
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, the authors also point out, very interestingly, this is the earliest known amniote, that is, reptile mammal group, that shows reduced eyesight and non-visual hunting. Oh. Which is cool. And... Several other marine reptiles were known to inhabit the lagoon that, they, that this lived in, so they're suggesting that perhaps its super specialized habits were a form of what we call niche partitioning, where you Which is avoid one of my comp- favorite terms. Yeah, it's good. You avoid competing with your yeah, neighbors by eating things, or eating in ways, or finding food, or hunting at times that no one else is doing it. Yep, and they also make the point. That this is the early Triassic, and there's kind of been this long-running suggestion, if you remember episode 45. The very start of the Triassic was not a great time, and it's been long thought that diversity probably lagged, that it took a little while for for life to start diversifying. This is a surprisingly derived, Mm -hmm. right, different organism for a time where we have proposed that generally animals were not doing great.
2: Yeah, the things were kind of stagnant, recovering from the extinction.
0: So, Aretma ripus is surprising and cool
2: and weird and wonderful. I, I, I already think it's adorable. It's pretty I, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, speaking of the early Triassic and interesting early ancestors to some groups of reptiles, I have one from Antarctica for my next next bit of news. Oh. Basically from the same time, this is directly after the Permian extinction that they, this animal is dated to, but this is an early Triassic archosaur. Archosaur contains crocodilians and dinosaurs and their surrounding cousins, discovered into Antarctica, and also shed some of that light on the fact that, first up gives a little bit of information on the dispersal of archosaurs during this time, and also the rate of evolution during this time. Very similar To our weird platypusy reptile. Cool. The research we're looking at is by P. Cook et al. In the Journal of Verbit Paleontology, the JVP. And the article we'll be linking to is Ashley Strickland in CNN Space and Science. So, once again, Antarctica, as we discussed in episode 11. Antarctica was not always cold and ice-covered. It was fairly temperate and even warm during much of the Mesozoic and during this time especially in the triassic it was still part of pangaea and would have been directly attached to africa and india and australia right perfect for dispersing across yeah. continents everyone's moving everywhere so we already know that antarctica had diverse life and you know we found dinosaurs there we found others but we still don't know a lot about it because it's under ice so every fossil we find opens up that picture a little bit More. Well, this new archosaur from 250 million years ago cracks the door open slightly further for a little bit of light to come through. This is Antarctanax Shackletoni. This has an awesome name. The first part, (laughs) (laughs) Antarctanax, translates to Antarctica King. Yeah, and it sounds like like a transformer. It does, right? (laughs) The second name is uh, for Ernest Shackleton who was an Antarctica exp- uh, Antarctic explorer. Yeah, uh, and an order in the Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> now, this was not a big king of Antarctica. This was about iguana-sized. Mm-hmm. And as a early archosaur, at a layman's glance, would have been very lizard-esque, but was not sharing many of their features. So we're definitely looking at a distant, distant relative and ancestor to the whole dinosaur-crocodilian group. And this one, like all the best versions of those mentioned, also appears to be predatory. Of course. So probably going for little stuff, you know, in the, the water and little creatures around, maybe even early ancestors, the mammals. It's always nice to picture them. (laughs) <laughs> what, what, what were they doing back then <laughs> thinking about
0: becoming platypuses <laughs> yes yes. <laughs> they, were, they were looking at the water going hey
2: that guy's got the right idea <laughs> you, you eat me today but, but soon <laughs> I will be so weird that my heels will sting you now some of the notable aspects of this discovery is just how it furthers the data about these early archosaurs in this area Similar to the situation with Eretmoripus, this shows that archosaurs were not quite as stunted during this early period of the the Triassic as we had thought. Now, we knew that throughout the Triassic, archosaurs were one of the groups that bounced back best, obviously because it led to the rise of dinosaurs and the age of reptiles throughout the Mesozoic. But this is early Triassic, and before the Triassic, and the Permian, Archosaurs were really only found around the equator. Mm-hmm. This is Antarctica. Yeah. So this is nowhere near the equator anymore. It's not as far away as it is now, but getting further and further south. So they've already dispersed this far within the beginnings of the Triassic. Which is pretty fascinating. That's really interesting. Now, this other little part, they don't have a direct answer for or something to draw from it, but... It's not that similar to the archosaurs around this time that have been found in South Africa, which was attached to Antarctica. Hmm. So something about Antarctica was making a unique collection of animals, a unique environment, even compared to nearby portions of Pangea. So interesting. A little bit more on the picture of what Antarctica was like. And it's still a weird place. Yes. But archosaurs seem to be doing much better in early Triassic than the general thought process would lend you to believe. I wonder if that
0: is due to the fact that they rebounded more quickly after the Permian extinction, or if we have underestimated their geographic widespreadness in the Permian. Like, maybe maybe they were already there. Mm -hmm. Perhaps more early studies on Antarctica will find that.
2: Yeah, they, they may have already had some of this dispersal. It'd be very interesting. It'd be very interesting to figure out exactly why they seem to have taken over so, so quickly. The Triassic was such a weird and wacky time. Yeah. It's so cool.
0: Well, my next bit of news is going to go back even further than that. And I think, is that a trend? What was your first news about?
2: I already forgot. Uh, Mice from nine years ago. That's right. We are. We're going back in time. <laughs> nice from nine years ago. This next We're going to
0: push it back slightly further th- than that. We're going to push it back 407 million years, minus nine.
1: <laughs>
0: to the famous Rhiney Church in Scotland, where researchers have discovered some absolutely fascinating microfossils. And when I say microfossils I'm not talking microvertebrates like it will we say at the Gray Fossil Site with you know snake vertebrae and mice teeth I mean microfossils These are fossil amoebae. that's awesome from Scotland This is research by Christine Stroulou-Durian et al in Current Biology and will link to the article by Josh Davis on the Natural History Museum of London's Science News section, which may or may not be sort of press releasey, It probably is. These researchers are all from the museum. The Rhiney Chert in Scotland is a super famous fossil locality. It dates to the uh, early Devonian period, and it represents a very early terrestrial ecosystem. So this is a time period. Right, there are no right. The tetrapods, vertebrates haven't quite made it onto land yet. But there are some very early vascular plants. Little, you know, you know, maybe a, maybe a couple feet tall at best. Plants. Lots of invertebrates, you know, worms and, and and insecty type things. But the Rhiney Chert is this sort of. It, it, it's described in the article as a sort of geothermal wetland that was constantly flooded with this silica-rich water that preserves microscopic fossils. So on top of plants and animals, researchers have also found fossils of fungi and green algae and cyanobacteria, which has given us a really great insight into this early, early terrestrial ecosystem. So these researchers have been exploring the environment of the Rhiney chert to examine what the earliest ecosystems in soils were like. They were focused, at least the, the main author here, uh, Stru Ludurian, comments that she, her studies are often focused on fungal relationships. What were fungi doing around the time that the first organ, first, you know, non-bacterial organisms were making it up onto land. But while researching this, they found little, what are called, tests. So, yeah. episode second episode of Spotlight, we talked with Adrian Lamb, who studies foraminifera. And the reason that foraminifera are so common in the fossil record is because they're microsco- microscopic organisms that make little shells for themselves. Diatoms do this. Mm-hmm. Those are sometimes called tests. Yeah, we mentioned them in the micropilontology episode two. Yes, we did. Episode 22. These are shaped like vases, and they have a little hole where the tentacle-like pseudopod structures stick out of testate amoeba cells amoebae to pluralize it are single-celled organisms and what makes them interesting in comparison to the cyanobacteria or the fungi that the researchers have found is that they are phagotrophic which means they eat by engulfing other organisms into themselves
2: (laughs) <laughs> these
0: tests that they found, they identified as part of a family called the Arsalinidae, and they identified them as a new genus and species named Paleoleptoclamys hossii. Each of these is roughly 50 microns across. To put that into perspective, that's really, really small.
2: That's a whole 50 microns. A
0: whole, that's, that's half as much as 100 microns. <laughs> in the place where they found them, the, the these shallow pond environments, either freshwater or brackish, which is to say, you know, a, a little salty or occasionally salty, they were also buried in and among uh, filaments of cyanobacterial mats, which could very well be what they were eating.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which is cool. It's not every day you find a fossil organism buried in a pile of its food. (laughs) Dung beetles. (laughs) That is a very good point. (laughs) These are cool for all sorts of reasons. So what does it mean to find a little, uh, an amoeba or several in ancient soils? First of all, this family of testate amoebae, the oldest known fossils up until this, are Permian. Wow. So this is about 150 million year extension into the past. There are similar tests known from much, much earlier than this, as far back as 800 million years ago. Not the same family, but similar lifestyles, it seems, which suggests that these amoebae, this this style of life, may have done the same thing that a lot of animals and plants did and transitioning from ocean to freshwater to land that these were now living in soils associated with fresh water. Cool. And my favorite part and probably the most exciting part of this, these microorganisms just like the fungi, just like the cyanobacteria are extremely important for terrestrial environments. Right? You hear about how, you know, the little when you talk about little things like, oh, earthworms are so important because they mm-hmm. cycle the the soil. These amoebae are a huge part of nutrient cycling. So taking important materials, you know, nitrogen and and things like that, and moving them through the cycle that goes on through the organisms, dispersing around the soil. Extremely important for making those nutrients available for other organisms in the ecosystem to make use of, including plants. So the researchers point out that there is a very good chance that these sorts of microorganisms, these amoebae, were important contributors to creating the soil ecosystems that would have been necessary for plants to move in in the first place. And of course, it goes without saying, I think, that plants moving up onto land would have been a prerequisite for later complex animals to eventually move in and form bigger terrestrial ecosystems. It's
2: microbe terraforming.
0: Yeah, it is and evidence for it is super rare because they're microbes they're single-celled organisms and this is super cool to find
2: nice that's very cool and it it's worth noting that modern day soils are full of these examples you know the the oh, yes. fungus that are critical for plants to function and be as healthy as they are just often it's overlooked because it's you never see it <laughs> above the ground <laughs> And if you look under the ground without a microscope, you're not going to see it there either. Nope. And the list goes on and on of those examples. Seeing that this dynamic was potentially set up very, very early on makes sense, but is also really cool and significant. You know, This isn't something that became, I mean, it probably became more complex with more players and more things in the soil doing right. jobs. But it wasn't that like plants came up and then stuff started getting weird in the soil. You know, no, that, it was like that when we got here. And that's cool. <laughs> it also,
0: we were talking about making predictions earlier. Apparently, it also lines up with what genetic studies have found that estimate that these kinds of amoebae, these kinds of microorganisms, moved on to land alongside the earliest plants, which is something that we also see in fungi. So, like, the move to land wasn't, like, Plants went up, and and now we are here. It was an entire ecosystem gradually shifted up onto the land. Plants came onto land and brought their whole posse with them. The whole thing. They had to have the the groundwork. Or the amoeba, you know, really. It's protozoans and
2: bacteria moved onto land, and they, they, they tested it out first. These are all the different ways it's being described within the different department meeting rooms. Of right. the plants, the fungus and the microbes. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, we all we all appreciate how hard the plants work, you know, but come on. With us without us amoebae, yeah, I mean, we all know we wouldn't have made it. So we're <laughs> we're not gonna down on what they do, but yeah, come on. And the plants on the other side going, Hey, we we were happy to pave the way for the amoeba and the fungus, you know. We had to do what we had in just every different room arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's some fascinating
0: evolution and ecology for you. And you know who was into evolution and ecology, Will? Oh. That's right. Alfred Russell Wallace
1: was.
0: (laughs) So we're going to take this opportunity to wrap up the news and move on to our main topic of discussion. After the little musical interlude, we will be joined by Dr. Sarah Bray to discuss the life and times of of famed scientist alfred wallace stay tuned Woo-hoo. hello sarah
3: hey david hey well
0: hello thanks for joining us again
3: thanks for having me i'm excited to talk about wallace with you guys
0: Yes, we are here to talk, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we are here to talk about a famous person named Wallace. But first, before we introduce Wallace, if you wouldn't mind to please introduce yourself.
3: Sure. Um, so I'm Sarah Bray, and I am a professor of biology at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a small liberal arts college, and I'm happy to say I think last time I, uh, since the last time I talked to you guys, we have officially... Adopted a bat as our mascot, so yes, Ooh, very
2: nice. <laughs> pretty
3: excited about it. it's it's the Raffinass bat. I don't remember if we had last time I had talked to you guys. I not.
2: remember you talking about them wanting to. I don't yeah. know if they had.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we're we're legit now. Although the the drawing to me looks a little bit more like the Picardi rum bat than you know the Raffinass bat, but you know we'll,
2: we'll roll with it. Oh, that's shoddy.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I um. I'm an ecologist and um, teach ecology, evolution, most of the organismal courses, um, with my focus is on plants, and um, found out about you guys because David had listened to the podcast that I'm on, which is um, Discovering Darwin.
0: Yes, a very good podcast that all of our listeners should check out. Please do. And indeed, long-time listeners will remember that way back in episode 28 Sarah joined us for a discussion about Charles Darwin uh, in celebration of Darwin Day. And now, in the year 2019, Darwin Day is upon us again. So we have brought Sarah back. Sarah, you are actually the first person in the history of the Common Descent podcast to get two full guest episodes. Woohoo! Yep. <laughs> So we are we are very excited to have I you. I feel return.
3: like an SNL return host now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much like
0: that. <laughs> We're gonna let you do a monologue.
3: Oh,
1: okay.
0: <laughs> uh, spoilers for our listeners, by the way. Uh, Sarah will not be the last mm-hmm. to join us multiple times.
1: Oh.
0: Uh, but but we get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so Darwin Day, as a quick reminder for everybody, is a celebration of the work of Charles Darwin. Darwin is kind of a big deal if you're into biology and evolution. As we discussed back in episode 28, he was a remarkable scientist. He did he, he contributed a whole lot to our modern understanding of biology, and he's more than a little bit of a role model for scientists today. So on Darwin Day, uh, biology fans spend the day geeking out and having special events and stuff. Darwin, of course, famous for introducing us to much of our modern understanding of how evolution works. Uh, Descent with modification by means of natural selection. And if you need to know more about that, go check out episode 28 (laughs) and or listen to Discovering Darwin, uh, hosted by Dr. Sarah Bray and friends. (laughs) But Darwin's had his episode. (laughs) That's not who we're here to talk about today. Sarah, please, if you would... Tell our listeners, who is this guy named Alfred Russell Wallace?
3: Yes. So um, Alfred Russell Wallace was a a contemporary of Darwin. He's a little bit younger than um, Darwin. And uh, he was sort of a a middle class uh, man who actually had his uh, formal education stop at about 14. But he was um, a really excited um, amateur naturalist and went on uh, pretty extreme journeys to Amazon, and at the time was called the Malay Islands. And about... At the same time, in some ways, we can talk about that in more detail later, Wallace also had similar ideas about the mechanism of natural selection to explain the origin of species. And so he went on to do lots of other things um, in his life, some controversial, some pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's a guy that doesn't, um, he always gets kind of mentioned as a footnote to
0: Darwin. Mm-hmm. Right. He's sort of the other guy. The exactly. other guy that, that talked about evolution. Yeah. Yeah, it's,
2: it, and if you liked Darwin, check out Wallace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah look, exactly. You,
0: layout, users who liked Darwin yes. also liked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Well, the famous story, and we'll, we'll get more into this, but the famous story, of course, is that Darwin, and we actually mentioned this in our Darwin episode, that Darwin worked for decades on this this research, this this crazy idea of his, and then got a letter one day. From Wallace, and Wallace said, Hey, I had this wacky idea that organisms like <laughs> develop new species over time by divergence of traits, uh-huh. and Darwin kind of freaked out about it. He
3: absolutely it. did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, over the course of the episode, we'll, we'll hopefully get a chance to talk uh, a bunch about Wallace's personal life and, and his work, but let's start with his journey to the, the the understanding of evolution and we will along the way be discussing wallace sort of in comparison and contrast mm-hmm. to darwin a little bit because that is wallace's curse right. to be <laughs> eternally compared to darwin uh so go ahead yeah sarah how did how did wallace get started on the journey that would eventually lead him to this grand discovery
3: Right. So um, in 1848, Wallace decided that it was uh, time to take a trip to the Amazon. He had been collecting beetles in, um, in the UK, in the United Kingdom, and felt that he could never answer any good questions without collecting a broader array from um, more places. Uh, so he that was one of his motiv- motivations. The other was that he was going to make money by traveling and um, uh, collecting specimens to be sold to museums and to, um, to collectors at the time. It was a really hot thing in um, the, the Victorian era to kind of have your own curios of collections.
0: Okay. This was something that, Darwin used to call people out for as well in that time, is say, "Hey, go collect things, and I'll I'll repay Absolutely. you for it." Absolutely,
3: yeah, and and eventually, actually, um, so Wallace's first journey was to the Amazon, and he actually went with, um, Bates, who people may know from, uh, Batesian mimicry that, um, Bates explains, mm. uh, oh. why you know why it is that, um. Butterflies, for example, might mimic another poisonous species. So they actually went together. So they went on a ship together, two pretty now known as great naturalists, uh, but just kind of young guys that wanted to go on an adventure um, <laughs> and uh, went to the Amazon. And And they did collect for a while together. But what's kind of funny is that at a certain point, I think there got to be a little bit of... Um, turf battle actually and this fear that they were uh they needed to split up the amazon so that they were not you know collecting again if you will against one another and so they, they they parted ways for a while actually when they were in the amazon interesting yeah it was uh kind of interesting but they, they you know they still continued to keep in contact while they were there so um you know wallace's is- Doing a lot of collecting in the Amazon is starting to discussing the idea of where do species come from, and the idea that that species are are always appearing, um, and that they, that species must come from other species. And I think you know when we guys we all talked uh, last year, we talked about that it wasn't that no one was thinking about hey maybe species come from other species. It was it was in the zeitgeist um, at the time. What nobody really had forwarded in a um, super clear way or well-reasoned way was what is the mechanism so it was clear it was a question that Wallace had um, during this journey Um, and so this is kind of a parallel to Darwin right Uh, Darwin went on his big grand journey on the Beagle when he was a young man Um, and they didn't cross the same uh, land necessarily but they had some similar experiences of really roughing it getting to know some native peoples um and doing lots and lots of collecting
0: nice and they were if i remember right wallace and darwin were both inspired by some of the same popular writings about this question of where, how does life change and where do species come from? Yes,
3: yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, they had both read Vestiges of Creation, which was kind of one of um, the first to try to give a mechanism to where species had come from. Um, They were both influenced by Malthus, um, who talked about... um, that resources grow at a, a linear rate, but populations grow exponentially and that causes the struggle for existence. So um, they were reading a lot of the same people. They both were in love with, hum, um, with Humboldt, uh, who was you know, a naturalist <laughs> of a generation before them, really. Um, and so it's really interesting looking at both their journals that they will refer back to Humboldt's writings.
0: Very cool. So Wallace went on this, like, grand epic journey through the the forests and that's something that i think you know I, I when i picture these sort of victorian era gentlemen of science they're sort of that proper sitting at home and playing with <laughs> you know my my jars and things <laughs> but like darwin wallace you know like traveled up and down amazon yeah. rivers and and spent years out in the wilderness doing some hardcore naturalizing
3: absolutely yeah he was he was in brazil for four years um by the time that wow. uh, he went home yeah. so and he'd actually convinced his um youngest brother um herbert to come basically apprentice with him like hey come learn to be a naturalist and we can cover more ground and um at one in uh 1851 so Bates had been there almost, uh, I guess, three years. I'm sorry, I said it again. Wallace had been there almost three years. Um, his brother actually fell ill, and they were not together at the time. And by the time Wallace got there, his his brother had already passed away. So um, it was a hard, a hard place to live. Um, and Wallace himself became very ill when he returned to um to where to where his brother was um where his brother was staying. So it was a pretty. Difficult place for, uh, yeah, European Victorian men to try to make their way through uh, the forest and. Uh, Dar- um, Wallace even makes fun of himself at one point um, in some of his writings about how silly he must look with his all his clothes, and as he's watching the native peoples that are you know not wearing that many clothes, and he recognizes how it's so much more logical for being in this kind of environment. <laughs> um, which that's something I appreciate about Wallace. That's a pretty enlightened point of view for mm. a Victorian man of that time. <laughs>
0: You mentioned before that one of Wallace's big driving forces for collecting, right? Obviously, he was doing it because he is a researcher and mm-hmm. he wants to collect stuff, but he's also selling his collections, right. which is a dramatic difference from Darwin. That Darwin never needed money from anybody, except, right. I guess, dad.
3: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, Darwin really was the the... Half of the top of the one uh, yeah. percent, and so he ran around with a um, a letter of credit, essentially from his dad, that he could just go to any bank and get money. Uh, Wallace was um, he was hustling uh, to to really <laughs> do his thing, uh, and so he had an agent in uh, England, Stevens, that he would send specimens and letters to occasionally. Um, and then he would get a letter credit of credit back from that that would kind of allow him to do the next thing. But even when he was ready to come home, it was a question of, okay, can I send enough stuff back to get enough money to get on a boat to go home?
1: <laughs> right.
3: And, and then I think most people know about uh, most famously of his Amazon uh, journey was really his return trip. Uh, if anybody knows anything usually about his experience in the Amazons, the return trip, which um, he leaves in July of 1852 on um, the Helen heading to England, heading home. He's really excited about coming home and uh, the ship catches fire (laughs) and Wallace runs into his cabin, saves uh, a watch and a shirt. I believe it was and loses 500 pounds worth of specimens and all his journals um he had both lived and preserved specimens, so he had these monkeys and a parrot, and he loses all of this, which you know he was gonna use to make money to go on to do his next thing uh so here they are on their little life rafts in <laughs> the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and they're gonna try to make for Bermuda, which is seven hundred miles away
1: <laughs> Wow um.
3: <laughs> They do get picked up by another ship, which also looks like it's about to sink (laughs) any time. And eventually he makes it home. He was at sea for for 80 days.
0: Wow. (laughs) Now, there should be a Wallace movie. There yeah. should.
3: He lived a life, I'm telling you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's always funny to me to think about cuz I've heard this story and it and it's first of all a, a moment of silence for 500 pounds <laughs> of specimen. Yeah. Yes. But also that it always seemed silly to me when I was younger to hear of a sh- a ship catching fire. Mhm. Cuz my first thought is, well you're in the ocean, but that also means that there's literally nowhere to go. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. For that's at least when your house catches fire, <laughs>
3: you can run outside. <laughs> like,
0: you can run outside, and the fire department can get to you. Like, yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah. And yet, uh, tenacious Wallace. Published on his his stuff that he worked
2: on,
3: absolutely in the Amazon, he did. Uh, so he had two main books that came out of his time in the Amazon: um, travels on the Amazon, which was you know a travel log, um, was kind of um, similar to Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle. It was meant to be a popular um, travel log, and the other thing he wrote was um, a book on palms. One of the things that he um, was interested in was he had gotten. Um, hooker who was the conservator of kew gardens to kind of vouch for him and he was going to buy some specimens from wallace uh and one of the things they were really interested in was this palm that was um, heavily exported but it was coming from way up the um, amazon river and so they didn't really you know know for sure what this palm was so he he did really focus a lot on palms and wrote a book Hooker ravaged him about this book. Um, he he was pretty uh, pretty nasty about it. It was it got mixed reviews. Like some people said, this was a this a nice edition. But it's it's this interesting theme throughout Wallace's life about his relationship with Hooker. That you know Hooker did kind of give him some of the gravitas that allowed him to go on this trip and and um, you know get entryway into a lot of places. But um, Hooker was always kind of putting him down until. Pretty late in Wallace's life when he, he he did actually come around. So we we may see appearances of, of Hooker in and out of his life as we move forward. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that 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 uh, contentious scientific community. Yes, mm-hmm. that <laughs> and, we're so familiar. with. Yes,
3: and and I think for poor Wallace um, that some of this is uh, about class, and it's about. Um, his lack of formal education that really made it harder for him to get acceptance within the scientific community that he worked through, worked for, for his entire life.
0: Yeah. Now, Wallace's grand thoughts on what would become evolutionary theory did not uh happen at least the the pinnacle of them did not happen in brazil correct he he didn't stop with brazil even after (laughs) almost dying in a fire and then almost drowning and losing (laughs) years of work
3: exactly yeah so he he
0: said you know what i want to do i want to go back out
3: exactly (laughs) it didn't take him that long uh to decide that he wanted to hit the road again hit the seas again uh so (laughs) he returned home in in 1852 uh, by 1854, he was sending letters to the admiralty to try to get them to pay for his trip to Singapore. <laughs> so uh, nice. he was wanting to head to, to what is now Indonesia, what at that, what at that time was the, called the Malay Islands. And yeah, he uh, did manage to get to the admiralty to pay his way there. Um, and this time he takes an apprentice with him, an English apprentice uh, that he is going to, not his brother, no re- no relative this time, that he is going um, <laughs> to <laughs> train up and hopefully not lose or die in the, uh, in the forest. And so he really spends um, the next f- over four years island hopping, essentially, throughout um, Indonesia. And Wow. yeah the the big thing that was so important to him was the fact that he was moving from island to island and uh, was noticing these really distinct distributions of organisms um, and one of the first times that hit him was when he was going from the island of um bali to the island of lombok which are separated by only less than 30 kilometers um, of a a strait of water and he noticed that and i'll just quote the man directly here he noticed that the fauna belonged to two quite distinct zoological provinces of which they form the extreme limits Um, so he starts seeing these really distinct distributions paying a lot of attention to biogeography and seems, you know, starts to think, well, the only way this could really be explained is through this idea of uh, descent with modification that leads you to these kind of localized distributions of, of organisms.
0: Cool. It's one of the sort of foundational principles of evolution that I think gets less attention. I, I, it's always down the list when I hear people talk about evidences for evolution is biogeography. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm.
0: simply the way organisms are arranged. Right. And I think it's really telling that Wallace like again like Darwin spent
2: time on islands. Yes. That's exactly that's exactly what I was about to say is the f- I, the fact that islands played a uh, important role in both formations of the idea it, it goes to show how important that clue is and how <laughs> active Natural selection is across islands, which is cool.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And and um, in his, he has this Wallace has this species notebook that he kept that um, while he was in Indonesia. And in in this, he has some quotes actually from a uh, Voyage of the Beagle, where Darwin is talking about the Galapagos. So there's a there's a lot of connection there in terms of how he's thinking about these islands and and what Darwin was also thinking.
0: Cool. In fact, the first the first three episodes of the Common Descent podcast were obligatory topics. They were paleontology. Mm-hmm. Then it was Will's animals. Then it was my animals. The first, <laughs> the first non-obligatory topic, actually, that we did, episode four, was island evolution.
1: Awesome.
0: Yes, yeah, so we'll go all the way back, listeners, and <laughs> You've we'll been
3: tell it. you mm-hmm. about
2: why islands are so crazy. Yeah, there's a reason that that was an easy topic to pick as our first <laughs> <laughs> random top subject.
3: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So. Um, this is a, I, f- I actually find his time in um in Indonesia so interesting because like you um you guys were saying this idea of this, you know, Victorian scientist you expect him to be sitting, you know, at home with his specimens. Uh, but man, he went to some crazy places, lived in some crazy places, had crazy things happen to him. But he did kind of have a few home bases at various times and uh, would you know go back and get resupplied and there, there's just um, a few scenes of him sitting in in this hut where well, I must have my tea you know so there's certain things <laughs> a British gentleman cannot go without, no matter where one is
2: <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Uh, I'm sure there's something to be said about You, you can take the, the 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 proper Victorian British gentleman. Away from England, but you can't
2: take the England the, out of exactly. the <laughs> no. proper Victorian British You cannot
3: German. take the tea from the man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's, we're here to do important science, science, but that doesn't mean we have to throw all reason out the window. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Come on. <laughs> so it was in those journeys that
0: he came up, and, and the story of, of the, the, the alleged story of him coming to this idea is also very funny.
3: Yeah. So there's really two big things that he does in terms of forwarding his ideas of of evolution while um, in Indonesia. And so there's two papers and they're they're named by, they have actual names, but most people discuss them by where he wrote them. So the first one is the Sarawak paper, which was written on the Sarawak River on, on the island of Borneo. And uh, that one was the On the Law which Has Regulated the Introduction of New Species. Uh, And in that, he really just lays out his agreement with the idea that, you know, species arise from other species. So, just, you know, a couple quotes maybe to kind of illustrate that. He says, every species has come into existence, coincident both in time and space with a pre existing closely allied species. So, seeing the connection between. You know, organisms of similar groups seem to have had a common ancestor. Um, he also says that his theory explains the natural system of arrangement of organic beings, their geographical distribution, their geological sequence, the phenomena of representative and substituted groups and all their modification and the most singular peculiarities of atomical structure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so those are all, you know, lines of evidence that we have all seen to as evidence of, you know, common descent. Uh, so he's really laying out kind of the the groundwork. He stated a theory, but he has no mechanism. Like Darwin, right. he also came up with like a tree metaphor of of um, how species arise. And so that was that was kind of the first one, and that was early on. The second one that you were talking about, um, David, is often called the Turnate paper. And uh, of course, like I said. Wallace had many envishers. He had a terribly sprained ankle. It abscessed. He had Mm. all kinds of rashes. But this particular paper arose from what was um, a bout of malaria. And he was really very ill, um, highly fevered. And this is the letter that he did um, send to Darwin uh, eventually. And so this is where he now lays out the idea of of natural selection and that is the one that made darwin terrified <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that he was gonna lose his his priority
2: poop, poop his pants just
0: a bit
3: exactly <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it was a it, w- it was a fever dream it, it, the way that the story often goes uh, just, yeah this, yeah in a fevered state yeah. he, he was struck by this
2: inspiration yeah.
3: so yeah and i i think that's one where you know we we've, we've created a big uh, hoopla around it when you look back at his species notebook he's been playing with these ideas over this time i think it was that what often happened with wallace while he was traveling is that anytime he did get ill so that he couldn't do things that's when he would write because he couldn't collect Mm -hmm. um and so it was yeah probably a function of him being unable to do anything else that once he got at least a little bit lucid, he's like, well, I'll just write down some of these ideas finally.
2: <laughs> yeah, stuck in bed can only think.
3: Yep, exactly. I can identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other big thing that, you know, really came out of this travel for Wallace is it Unlike the Amazon, it was much more lucrative because he didn't have anything go down in a blazing fire of ship. <laughs> um, his <laughs> last shipment back to Stevens before he came back um, himself was in uh, 1857, and he sent back 9000 specimens of 1600 different species And uh, it was worth. um, He got ended up getting a thousand pounds for that, which was a really huge, you know, pretty big sum of money in a lump sum at that time. And the other big thing is uh, Wallace was obsessed with finding birds of paradise um, and and collecting those. (laughs) Um, Who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for all your listeners out there, if you haven't seen them, do a quick Google. The Cornell Lab has like just fabulous videos of the courtship of these birds and they are spectacular Mm -hmm. so he spent a lot of time um, collecting those he actually ended up, before he left he had three people working for him also he would buy things from natives to to try to get it and then his other big thing was he was collecting a lot of orangutans so like many (laughs) Victorian naturalists you just think (laughs) of him decimating (laughs) the flora and fauna where he goes through
0: (laughs) Well, there is the the famous story that I uh, that I've read for him, and I, I I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring it up for Will because I know Will has a special orangutan shaped place. In his <laughs> yes, heart. I do. Yes, I do. Uh, the story that I I read is that Wallace temporarily adopted a baby orangutan, mm-hmm. which sounds all adorable and wonderful, but he adopted it because he killed its mm-hmm. mother. Oh, yes, <laughs> to collect yes. her.
3: <laughs> and then the the baby died eventually too because he couldn't
2: because he didn't know how to take care of exactly. an orangutan yeah so wait you're saying that you're saying that he has the same relationship with that orangutan as thanos with the G- gamora <laughs> <laughs> just throwing it out there well
0: when you put it that way listen he had to he had to give up something he loved in order to gain the theory of evolution <laughs> what did it cost <laughs> what did it cost oh man <laughs> But anyway, um, so Wallace extremely successful across uh, the Indonesia, across islands. Uh, we could talk a little bit more later on about sort of the other scientific ideas that came out of that those trips. But let's just to change things up. Let's talk about Darwin for a second. Sure. Finally, what? <laughs> so eventually, as as you mentioned, Wallace con- reaches out to Darwin with this the with the, this idea that he had with this paper he mm-hmm. wrote. What was the relationship leading up to that?
3: Yeah, so um, I mentioned that uh, Wallace had written this Sarawak paper that kind of staked his claim for stating that species arose through common descent. And Darwin read it and was actually pretty dismissive of it. His, uh, his own writing about it says, nothing very new here, uses my <laughs> simile of the tree. It seems all <laughs> creation with him. So Darwin's first was like, eh, whatever, Wallace.
0: Never going to hear from that guy again. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> Lyle, right, the um, geologist who inspired, again, both Darwin and um, Wallace, actually called... Well, okay, he didn't call him up. They He rode him up, came and visited. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he pigeoned him. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and said... You know, this guy, hey, he's got something going on. I think you need to get moving on your idea here cuz this guy is on your tail. Um and so Darwin just was, you know, kind of like, "Oh, oh, all right. Um I'll I'll write him back." <laughs> and um so their their first really relationship then was that uh, you know, Darwin knew he was in Indonesia and said, "Hey, like he did to so many other naturalists, could you send me some specimens? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Darwin writes to Wallace for the first time in 1855 and basically gives him a list of things he wants. You know, there's a few different cases where Wallace is sending things back to his agent Stevens. And uh, so this one in particular, he said, the domestic duck is for Mr. Darwin, and he would perhaps like to take the jungle cock, which is often domesticated here and is doubtless one of the originals for the domestic breed of poultry. And, you know, one thing that was a little bit different between uh, Darwin and Wallace is Darwin started his argument with talking about domestication. An artificial yeah. selection, and so it's just so interesting that 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 theme is already there in their relationship from the very beginning.
2: I saw this duck, and I thought of you. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I like to imagine it's it's funny that because Wallace knew of Darwin, right? Darwin was was um. not yet, not yet darwin right but, you know he was a scientist yeah, absolutely and i if it it, it it seems very much like wallace reaching out to darwin is very much akin to us reaching out to you sarah <laughs> yeah for this Where it's like oh here's a a seasoned scientist mm-hmm, who knows mm-hmm. this topic and we'll reach out to them for for information right. and so it's sort of this this collaborative mm-hmm. uh relationship almost which is just you know just Two scientists talking to mm-hmm. each other, except, you know, via letters from the other side of
2: the world. Yeah, yeah. Instead of LinkedIn, it was the, the post. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and crazy. Think about the delays you would have in terms of you send off a letter and it takes months to reach the other person and then months for you, them to send you something back. It's an interesting conversation that they're having. Yeah. Uh, it's, like,
0: it's like communicating with curiosity on Mars. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So um, yeah, I think for Wallace, what he yeah, I mean, Darwin was really well known. He was really famous from writing The Voyage of the Beagle. And he kind of saw this as his way into, quote unquote, legitimate, you know, science society, if he could get this relationship going with Darwin. And so yeah, after that, they continue to uh, exchange letters while uh, Wallace is in Indonesia. And in 1857, Wallace receives a letter from Darwin that it seems to show now at this point Darwin is concerned <laughs> that Wallace <laughs> is on the same path and uh so one thing he says I agree to the truth of almost every word of your paper and that's about that uh Sarawak paper that I was um talking about but the the really fun part is where I feel like Darwin is calling dibs in his letter, um, and he says, um, this is Darwin writing to Wallace. This <laughs> summer will make the 20th year, exclamation point, since I opened my first notebook on the question how and in what way do species and varieties differ from each other. I am now preparing my work for a publication, but I find the subject so very large that though I have written many chapters... I do not suppose I shall go to press for two years. I have never heard how long you intend on staying in the Malay archipelago. I wish I might profit from the publication of your travels there before my work appears, for no doubt you will reap a large harvest of facts.
2: Interest.
0: That's really <laughs> wow. Really that's like that's not subtle. No, no. Like, girl,
3: step off. I've been working on this. Yeah, uh, it's and like, I don't know it, how long you're staying, but this is mine.
2: <laughs> that's a cool idea. In fact, it's so <laughs> no, cool. It's, I've been working on it for twenty years. Reminds
0: me of that time I spent my entire life coming up with this idea that I'm about to publish. <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: Uh so yeah you're th- you know clearly Darwin's getting uh a little antsy here but the best part is Wallace it seemingly at least in what we have left of his writings is kind of oblivious. He doesn't like really see that and say, <laughs> "Oh, oh Darwin's doing this already. I should just let it go." Um because so that was in 57 and then in March 1858 is when he writes um the the turn eight letter that i was talking about and this is the one that's on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type and that's that's where he proposes um natural selection so you know i'm i'm not sure what date he received that letter in 57 but it's certainly within a year anyway after (laughs) <laughs> the, the the territorial marking by Darwin peeing all over natural selection. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> well, Wallace is like, well,
0: if you liked that paper, <laughs>
3: yeah, here's you're gonna one. love
0: this next one. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> makes me think back to your initial comparison of just uh, the young new guy talking to an established person, just not being able to read. Yes. Like, oh, sweet, they responded.
3: <laughs> he likes me. <laughs> yeah. He likes me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we're going to work together. He wants to publish.
3: Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, so just classic.
0: <laughs> and we talked about uh, sort of the aftermath of that a bit in our Darwin episode. Right. Um, but uh, for a, a brief recap, Darwin receives the letter. <laughs> yes. And he needs some convincing on what to do with it.
3: Yeah, he really freaks out. Um So when Darwin um, receives this letter from Wallace and he's like, oh, man, this is my this is my thing. And the interesting thing about when Wallace sent the letter, it was like, oh, yeah, you might be interested in this. But hey, could you pass it on to Lyle? So he wasn't even (laughs) primarily trying to get Chuck on board.
2: (laughs) Oh, no.
0: (laughs) Wow. Like, hey, can you ask Lyle if he likes me
3: yes yeah (laughs) so he knew that Lyle (laughs) was one of the first people who thought his first paper the Sarawak paper was saying something so he's like oh he gets me could you pass that on to him (laughs) he'll be (laughs) all about this
2: (laughs) could you send this to Lyle you can read it if you want to but if you
3: (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly so so you this is this is how Wallace receives it and well, uh, sorry, Darwin receives it, and Darwin is actually kind of in the midst of family tragedy. His um, son Charles is very ill, and he actually ends up passing away at the same time that he receives this. And so, in Darwin's letter to Lyle, where he's like, All right, he asked me to forward this to him, I will. So, that was pretty stand up of Chuck. He says, um, There's nothing in Wallace's sketch which is not written out much fuller in my sketch copied in 1844 and read by hooker some dozen years ago about a year ago i sent a short sketch of which i have a copy of my views to asa gray so that i could most truly say and prove that i take nothing from wallace i should be extremely glad now to publish a sketch of my general views in about a dozen pages or so but i cannot persuade myself that i can do so honorably wallace says nothing about publication and i enclose his letter but as I had not intended to publish any sketch, can I do so honorably because Wallace has sent me an outline of his doctrine? I would far rather burn my whole book than he or any other man should think that I have behaved in such a paltry spirit. Do you not think that his having sent me the sketch ties my hands?
2: Andrew, that That's really wow. interesting. What a conundrum.
3: Yeah. So... so Darwin's clearly freaking out um, and Lyle gets together with Hooker and they all talk about this and they pretty quickly come up with um, a solution in which uh, Wallace's letter and the, the sketch that Darwin talks about from 1844 would be read at the next Linnaean Society meeting. Uh, so it's uh, at that meeting, it's um, introduced, they read the papers in chronological order, which technically then gives priority to Darwin, because his was read first and um, right. written first.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that that's a fascinating quote from him, because a lot of the time, at least I've heard it thrown around this way a lot of the time, people kind of, once they learn about Wallace, will kind of start turning a stink eye toward darwin that Mm -hmm. like he once he realized someone was catching up to him immediately like threw down a wall and published and you know blocked them from the goal which you could look at that way but also on the flip side if you've been working on this concept but it's a huge paradigm shifting concept Mm -hmm. you know and you're hesitant you're hesitant to publish on and then some younger person who Does not seem to have the same hesitation (laughs) suddenly comes along and is like, Hey, I had this idea. There's, there's gotta be some of that. Like I've had this idea. I just haven't been talking a whole bunch about it because I'm still forming it. Now this is out there and it's gonna seem like I am following that when, you know, your legitimacy as a scientist now is being yeah. dragged into it mm-hmm. which yeah it's it's a complicated situation that typically you don't hear about when you hear about these two what we're saying kids is publish your thesis
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> seriously <yes. laughs> now we we sort of we can frame it this way of uh, it was it was indeed a very generous thing in part of these men to not just throw Wallace's paper in the fire mm-hmm. and yeah. leave him in the dust but, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, Wallace was not brought in on the decision to present his work because, as you said, he was days and weeks of communication away. Right. So he found out about it after the fact.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So they, they uh, you know, send him a letter. Hey, guess what? We're going to present your paper at the Linnaean Society meeting. <laughs> so uh, it's done now. Hope you're okay with that. Um, and uh, in... In his contemporary writing of the time, he seemed actually really, really pleased. Um, And one of the things is that he was just so... um, So in a letter to his mother, he said that his letters were read by um, two of the most eminent naturalists in England, which have highly gratified me. I sent Mr. Darwin an essay on a subject upon which he is now writing a great work. He showed it to Dr. Hooker and Sir Charles Lyle, who thought so highly of it that they had it read before the Linnaean Society. This ensures me the acquaintance of these eminent men on my return home. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, it's interesting. It's not even he's not even worried about his priority or his ideas. He's like, I got it in.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. It, these famous guys read it to people. Yeah. It'd be like if uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson quoted your your thesis <laughs> during one of his interviews or or, or talks. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't be worried about him taking that chance away from you. He'd be like he said words I said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now I people know my name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and
0: so this was the unveiling. That, that that event was sort of the unveiling of this descent with modification idea
3: mm-hmm.
0: to on a stage.
3: Right. Exactly. Yes. And and that finally for the first time we had a mechanism to explain why descent with modification. Is occurring right so the the idea of of natural selection
0: and so there was evolution right the next year darwin uh, if i remember if i have my years correct Uh the next year darwin published his quote abstract right his his chapters and chapters of abstract yes uh but of course wallace didn't stop there wallace continued sciencing Mm -hmm. and we'll talk more about that We'll, we'll come back around to that but Uh, let's take some time and talk a bit more as we did with darwin about wallace the person who he was uh, you know his his life outside of science and before we do that we're going to take a very short break and we will be back in just a moment to meet wallace as just that guy from the uk the dude So, Sarah, tell us. Let's well, let's rewind. Let's go back. What what was Wallace's early life like before his trips? Before all this, how, how did he grow up?
3: Right. So, um, it's interesting. He really was actually born to um, I, I would say a relatively wealthy family when he was born. Um, his father had an income of um, five hundred pounds a year, which that was considerable. That was not for working. That was just you know living on inheritance essentially. Um but then, you know, they started having kids. Kids are expensive. Uh, and <laughs> it's it's an interesting trait in the Wallace family that they all seem to have a really bad sense of good investments. <laughs> so <laughs> oh. <laughs> through a series of really poor financial decisions, um Wallace's father really loses a lot of money and now has to work. Um, the family moves frequently when he um, is a child. Um, They live in Wales for a while. Um, They land in Hertford, England. Um, And that is where Wallace's dad uh, starts taking in um, pupils to try to make money. And uh, this is also where uh, Wallace gets all of his formalized um, schooling is when they live in uh, Hertford. So um, he makes a lifelong friend george silk who um you know appears throughout his life and is a really important confidant to him but his formalized schooling ends at uh, 14 basically because there's just not enough money to continue sending him to school yeah wow so he's sent off you know basically as as the kids get to be about at that age they're sent off to apprentice somewhere to learn a trade so at 14 wallace um Uh, is sent to his older brother, John, who was apprenticed to a a master builder. Uh, Later, he apprentices with his other older brother, uh, who is uh, William, and he becomes a surveyor. And uh, (laughs) William!
1: (laughs) Will's
0: Will's making lots of... Well, this is a joke. The (laughs) listeners will appreciate this, but they couldn't... It was very visual. Will reacted (laughs) to the name William, but before that... He reacted to the phrase master builder. I was going
2: to say, William should have gone and learned to be a master builder. (laughs) Because
0: Will is a dork.
2: (laughs) Says the guy who gets the reference. (laughs) That's what I want to be someday.
0: (laughs) Uh, So now when you say surveying, Wallace uh, was mapping.
3: Right, exactly. So at this time, um, there was a new lands act, and a lot of people needed to um, have their land surveyed. This is also a time when um, railways were really expanding. So there was just a lot of actual work to do this. And so for six years, he was a surveyor, um, moved around, went back to Wales. And that's really where he um, developed his love of, of naturalizing, of collecting, of um, you know, botanizing and beetleizing. I don't know. Is that a verb? <laughs> <laughs> um, beetling. Beetling. There we go. Um, And eventually he ends up in Leicester and that's where he meets um, Henry Walter Bates, right? Who he goes to the Amazon with. Um, And that's really what starts to get his itch for travel is he hooks up with Bates. They're running all over the countryside collecting things. Bates was was an avid entomologist and that's how Wallace got then into beetles and that kind of thing and that's where he first said I begin to feel rather dissatisfied with a mere local collection little to be learnt by it I should like to take <laughs> some one family to study thoroughly principally with a view to the theory of the origin of species so already from nice. the, that get go when he gets into it he's like wow. I'm figuring this out
0: <laughs> a man on a mission
3: yeah so, so that was kind of his early life he bounced around he was you know he had a pretty hard life. So again, in comparison to Darwin, right? Darwin super wealthy, got lots of formalized training, right? Tried to be a doctor, you know, got grossed out by that, right? Was going to go be a <laughs> little um, a minister, country parson, right? Got to go to um, University of Edinburgh, all these things. Um, and Wallace, you know, he just learned it himself you know, doing things. So really, really different ways that they ended up um, at the same place.
0: I find it fascinating that Wallace was a surveyor because mapping and surveying, you know, the the hand in hand with the biology that leads into evolutionary science Mm -hmm. is geology. Right. And Darwin fancied himself a geologist and wrote wrote about geology. And Wallace, uh, you mentioned before, Wallace was factoring in, fossil occurrences Mm -hmm. and and that organisms are not only similar in space but in time. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. there's that relationship. And mapping is like the foundational starting point of geology. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the famous early early geological insights came from people like William Smith. I hope I'm getting that right. Yeah, absolutely. Did the first maps and sort of the first geologic maps of, of, uh, it was, it was the UK, right? England? Mm -hmm, Yeah. That he did. And so that's, that's a cool combination of skills that Wallace built up, uh, geographizing and also collecting as a naturalist. And then he surveyed
2: rivers Mm
0: -hmm. when he was in the, the Amazon.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, it's that kind of groundwork, that kind of building up of the data. That then can be used for future research that was done by these these scientists at these this time that now we can continue to build off of. It's cool that he was doing a little bit of all of it.
3: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me about both these guys. I mean, I think one, yeah, the surveying it makes me wonder if it set him up to see biogeography then more because he was paying so much yeah. attention to place. Um, and the other thing is just the fact that you know today we are tend to be very siloed within our disciplines and these, you know, were the true Renaissance men that they could draw on all Mm -hmm. these different areas that just gotta feel like that's part of what allowed them to 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 get to this place.
0: Yeah. 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 I want to spend several years surveying and then several years
2: naturalizing and then (laughs) travel to the tropics on opposite (laughs) hemispheres. Well it's because like nowadays you can you can go look up the information that's been done by the other people in their other fields, mm-hmm. right? Back then, you didn't have that option. You couldn't just go and call the geologists. You know, you yeah. If you wanted to learn about the geology in this area, you start learning rocks because that's yeah. that's your only option. Get on a boat, yeah. <laughs>
3: Until you became a boss like Darwin, and then you could just get everybody to do all those things for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just send send requests. Yeah, I would like a duck. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I do like I do like that one of their first like interactions <laughs> was was one contact from Rawls and then basically a grocery list yeah. <laughs> from Darwin. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is very I, I like that seems
0: very much like their the close that that close approximation of Darwin taking on a student yeah of them being like hey i want to study this real cool thing and darwin's like awesome here's a menial task for you to do yeah it'll it'll be it'll be a learning experience yeah
2: here label these bones yeah yeah exactly, exactly. Right? It's, exactly. it's a grad very grad student as which yeah. which is actually kind of cool cuz they were on different continents <laughs>
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I don't even need to see you. Go do this.
0: Yeah.
2: Like, yeah.
0: <laughs> all <that's>, right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> all right. Cool. Your stuff. You can
0: do.
1: <laughs>
0: so Wallace takes this. You know, he he is he's sort of uh, self-making mm-hmm. a little bit. Right. You know, he's not wealthy. He has to earn his money. He he has to work. <laughs> unlike some other naturalists. Somebody else we know. <laughs> <laughs> and then later in life, uh, eventually he finishes his. You know, gallivanting mm-hmm. through malaria-ridden forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does he get into as a as a, an older man?
3: Yeah, so he he comes back after being in the the Malay Archipelago, and um, <laughs> much like Darwin, his mind gets set to a to marriage, right? Uh, just mm-hmm. like Darwin <laughs> kind of did, and so he's he's looking for a wife, and. He was uh, courting, if you will, the daughter um, of a friend, the the Leslie family, and so they had, you know, he had spent a lot of time on this. They they became engaged. Now the Leslie family was um, uh, socially higher and more wealthy than Wallace, and it ended up that the she broke off the engagement, and Wallace was crushed. And it's it's interesting that in his um, auto. Uh, biography that Wallace spends more time talking about, quote, Miss L and his broken off engagement than he does about the woman he eventually marries.
1: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, oh. So, so, yeah, it was. I hope she uh, didn't read that. I,
3: yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> apparently, the way to find a wife in um, Victorian England was either to marry your cousin, like Darwin did. Or <laughs> to marry your friend's daughters, which is also so his first engagement fell through that was a, a friend's daughter, but he eventually marries Annie Mittens, who's the daughter of a botanist friend. And this seems you know, it was a it was a good match. She also liked to botanize and um They uh, had three children. Two of them um, lived to adulthood. They seemed to have almost a hobby of building houses and gardens, and they'd get it all the way they liked it, and then they'd sell it. It's like Victorian flipping, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, that's cool. Um, It's nice to know that HGTV would have done well back then, too.
3: Exactly. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, he... um, Throughout his life, though, he had money problems. Um, he always was trying to get a, a, a permanent job as, you know, a curator, um, generally those kinds of, you know, curator type positions and um, always got passed over. And, and a lot of it probably had to do with um, his lack of formalized education, with his social class that didn't um, give him access to those um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting because it, some of those things are still reflected in, in science today, right? There are certain, yeah. yep. uh, there's plenty of people out there that don't have advanced degrees that know so many things and are, just fantastic at it or they don't have the right degree or um or you know again they don't have the social capital to to get to those things um so mm-hmm. we're, we're still <laughs> we're still fighting those those things today yeah yes.
0: how, how times have changed
3: <laughs> yeah uh, sadly <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's only been 150 years
2: give us some yeah, time that's all
3: come on yeah you know <laughs>
2: stop rushing <laughs>
3: wallace um you know so he he kind of has to his whole life he's essentially hustling right to try to make money he every day yeah he's uh (laughs) he's he uh over his lifetime wrote a thousand articles and 22 books um and that's where you know some of his income came from then is selling of books um some of the articles he would have been um Paid for. He went on a lecture circuit, including he did a tour in the United States, um, which was interesting. He made his way all the way out from, took a you know steamer ship to New York, played the East Coast, if you will. Uh, <laughs> went on to Chicago, Denver, and then uh, what his remaining living brother was living in California, and he made it all the way out there. So um, cool. Yeah, he he was. Um, really engaged in science his whole life. So in, in about 1880, Darwin was a major player to try to get Wallace a pension. There were a core group of scientists who really recognized that, you know, he had contributed a lot. He was having financial problems. And so uh, Darwin, Hooker and Huxley, Huxley, who's known as Darwin's bulldog, um, basically mm-hmm. worked to, with some other scientists to proposed to the government that he receive Wallace receive a pension. And in 1880, they managed to get him that. So he got a pension of 200 pounds a year, which was not luxurious, but it was definitely enough to take some of these money pressures um, off of him. And uh, so he had that for the, for the remaining 33 years of his life Um, was kind of able to not stress the same level. (laughs) So sending
0: that letter to Darwin Actually, did help. It
3: did. It yeah, did. like
0: he did make friends in he in did. the scientific circles yes. who could help him out. Yeah,
3: yeah, and, and notice that it's it's Hooker was the one that kind of went to bat for him, who was slamming him on his his palm book in the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. and 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 when they first <laughs> tried to get him this this pension, uh, one of the reasons Hooker was not actually for it, and he said the reason was some of the more, uh, shall we say, eccentric beliefs that wallace had so wallace was a well well well-known spiritualist right this was the era when people had seances and uh really popular right in the victorian era and most of the scientific elite thought that was poppycock and uh so we're we're not really into that uh so that was one of the main reasons hooker was kind of resistant in the beginning but yeah he was um really interesting in terms of his um his views on a lot of things he was um he felt that there shouldn't be any privately held land uh this actually came all the way back from his surveying days that he saw you know the effect that the land act had had on people especially um poor people he really was um uh a very much a socialist um in his uh views and was also an anti kind of the first anti-vaxxer so we do have to have a little bit of a black mark for him there <laughs> yeah <yep. laughs>
0: yeah although i guess back then it was probably a bit of a new thing i don't know the timeline off the top of my head
3: yeah I, I don't Salk and smallpox would have been the first i don't really remember i feel like that was 18th century though so it would have been
2: oh okay all right yeah so Anti-vaxxer then. Well, it, it actually is kind of interesting because it, it sounds like he, you know, fr- from the the bits of hearing about him, that he could have been one of those people that was just kind of open to lots of ideas, you know, very, very open to just, you know, the spiritualism things and, you know, the fact that he was a open minded enough, you know, European to recognize that the natives had better sense Mm -hmm. and clothing than he did the concept of no private land is is an out there kind of thing for people in in his you know his society Mm -hmm.
0: is he like that rich the rich white guy who's like they're doing all this great stuff over from the east asia and they've Mm -hmm. come up with all these cool remedies and things yeah
2: there's a person who's a little you know that can be a little too open to any sort of interesting yeah. idea, but also open enough that you come up with natural selection.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, <yes. laughs> that he was just a very open minded person, but he's like, oh, yeah, sure, ghosts, cool. And <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I like that you, Sarah, you drew a, a connection between his surveying experience and his ideas on privately held land. Mm-hmm. And I, earlier this very day, uh, I was sitting in the, in, on the, the periphery of a recording of a podcast of a couple of friends of ours who do a touch of gray. And there was a, a, a comment that I heard our surveyor at the museum, Brian mentioned that sometimes surveying can be very dangerous because you act, you end up on somebody's land and they come out with guns because yeah. they don't want you <laughs> yeah. to be on their land. And that was my first thought when he was like, there should be no private <laughs> yeah. land. And I'm like, who shot at you yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you were surveying across the UK? <laughs>
2: it would make things a lot easier if it was just okay for me to go where I needed
1: to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: So he does become a bit uh, notorious in his later life for some of these other ideas. Mm -hmm. Are there any others of those you want to make mention of uh, before we start talking about his more scientific Um,
3: contributions? The the one thing I think, again, I would say is, you know, post-Origin, there was a lot of discussion of social Darwinism going on. And um, this was something that Wallace did really confront. Um, And it's interesting because he did feel that evolution was progressive and that humans were going to progress to some better elevated um, state but he felt that um, it needed to be essentially guided in some way and so there's some interesting kind of intelligent designing things going on there but his response to social darwinism was instead of the horrible things that most social Darwinism did in the kind of <laughs> eugenics line um, yeah. was instead social intervention. So he was a big proponent of giving women a means of living other than marriage, so he was kind of a pseudo feminist, a little bit. Cool, he, Wallace
0: and his wacky ideas. I know,
3: crazy, yeah, <laughs> crazy guy. Spiritualism and women getting rights—this is nuts. <laughs> but uh, he really pressed for um, education for um, the poor classes, seeing that as a way to um, raise all boats and um, to essentially avoid the Malthusian crush that if people were educated, they would marry later, they would have fewer children, and so we wouldn't have as much of the suffering, uh, the Malthusian um, suffering, and that if we eliminate poverty, that will lead to the improvement of the race, so um, meaning human race. Uh, so I, I think that's notable is that he had these pretty um, – progressive um, ideas that certainly were not being embraced at the time.
0: Yeah. Cool. Interesting. It's it's fascinating to hear about Wallace, especially Darwin's got some of this, but a lot of famous scientists, people who spent as much time as they possibly could thinking and writing mm-hmm. just came up, just had all these ideas that they left behind for, for people to investigate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to see. It's, it's fun to see where, And we talked about this on the Darwin episode a little bit. It's always fun to see where they were progressive Mm -hmm. and
2: where they were very much products of their time. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, and it's one of those where, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, social Darwinistic things and and thinking of uh, progressive evolution, like humans. Like, that. of course that idea popped up after this Mm -hmm. was presented to the public. You know, you're going to apply it to everything and go does it fit here mm-hmm. does it fit yep. here <laughs> and the the thinking that it's going to constantly improve is another one of those like well yeah i mean if it's a process processes are leading somewhere right yeah and so it's you can see, like things that seem out of date backwards now even though they were the ones coming up with the topic it's you know makes sense when it's brand new
3: yeah absolutely
2: but of course wallace did not stop
0: sciencing after his his journeys around the world so what uh just briefly what are some of the other scientific works that wallace contributed
3: yeah so gosh like i said he wrote um 22 books um so some some of the books that he wrote um he wrote the geographical distribution of animals so that was his true bio um biogeography book Um, island life which was um, as we talked about before very everyone's fascinated with islands and what that means for evolution
1: (laughs) Um,
3: he wrote a book The Melee Archipelago and he dedicated that to Darwin and Darwin was just pleased as punch um, (laughs) (laughs) about that dedication. (laughs) Um, After Darwin died he wrote the book Darwinism in which Wallace was kind of trying to uh, develop the ideas further there and and one of the places where wallace and darwin had differences scientifically about um evolution and natural selection is how heritability works um and so darwin had kind of he eventually kind of um landed on this idea of gemules which was this idea that there's things throughout your body that um migrate then to your germ cells and that's what you know, causes inheritance. So didn't, Mm -hmm. um, and which of course we know is not the case. And it was a much more, it's kind of leaning towards acquired characters then. Um, and, and Wallace didn't know, like everybody else didn't know how heritability (laughs) would work, but he's like, ah, I don't think that's it. And one of the things he pushed for was to create an institute to study heritability, um, he never got it. But he was uh, really interested in that and and kind of um, barking up the correct tree, if you will. One of his more controversial, probably, um, uh, books or sorry, not books, but a uh, publication was the origin of human races from the theory of natural selection. Um, the reason, w- yeah, the reason why <laughs> the reason why it was controversial. It actually again is this idea that he had that he did think we the civilized state would have been the more evolved and he had ideas why the quote unquote uncivilized places were not hadn't reached that point so there was a little bit of that kind of um hierarchy Uh, but what made it particularly (laughs) disturbing was that he chose to publish it in um the anthropological society which seems, that sounds right, right? It's about people. That sounds like a good mm-hmm. place. Um, unfortunately, there were two main societies that were um, studying anthropology. And this one happened to be run by white supremacists.
1: Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ooh.
3: it seems Oops. that Wallace was just kind of naive. Again, he's, he just continually a little bit naive to things. <laughs> uh, didn't see that. And he's like, well, my last paper I published in the other one. so it's their turn um so and they
2: seem real excited about it nice, yeah. yeah right.
0: <laughs> i had a wonderful conversation with this nice man in a white hood yeah <laughs> he was really he was really, he was really encouraging
1: <sighs>
0: so oh, wallace
3: the the, uh, <laughs> the other reason seems to be that he did put a lot about sexual selection in that book and um that uh the the original um the sorry, the other society that he had published in before allowed women in it and he was thought it was a little too delicate for them for mixed company. So that uh, is, <laughs> seems to be the other reason.
0: Uh, so you're saying the white supremacist society also didn't allow women in.
3: Right. Yes. Yes. Of course oh, okay. they did. So of course Just, they did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise
0: <laughs> um
1: Oh, no. Yeah. So, so that, that one,
3: um, you know, not a good choice, probably. And, um, you know, his, his Huxley and, and, uh, Hooker and these folks were like, no, no, not there. Wallace, no. But he's like, no, no, it'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> a-
2: ask us first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ask us first. Right.
3: Uh, so, um, Wallace was, um, just super engaged, really, all the way up into the end of his life, and investigating all kinds of things. Um, I don't know. What do you guys know in terms of? Uh, there's just so much he's written. I'm sure you guys are aware of other things that I'm totally unaware of.
2: No, you you have mentioned all the ones that I would have mentioned, and they're they're, <laughs> well, they're all awesome. All awesome examples. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're ah, great. They're all, I like. They're awesome. all interesting. Every, every
0: word. <laughs> The other uh, thing I w- that I always think of in terms of sort of his scientific legacy is that he gave his name to a biogeographical uh, oh, yeah. division that we still talk about today the the Wallace line yeah. which is this this line he drew you were, uh, Sarah mentioned before that he would go from island to island and say oh the here's how the organisms are different and he established this line that basically separates the Asian side of the South Pacific from the Australian side and said all the animals are different when you cross this, what he must have thought was it's some mysterious reason or, or perhaps even an arbitrary line down the middle that this is where the, the faunas are different, which we now know, going back to our tying in geology, is a plate boundary. Right. Mm-hmm. And that it is, you're, what you're seeing is a a distinct genealogy on either side of this. What is now a fairly close together patch of islands and landmasses, mm-hmm. and we still call it the Wallace Line because right. he's the first one to have really drawn attention to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Which is cool.
0: Yeah. Now before we wrap up, one last question, and this this seems to to always be the thing that people wonder about Wallace. So Darwin worked real hard. Wallace worked real hard. They both, you know, jointly kind of presented this idea that became, you know, one of the foundational scientific theories in the world, and yet there is a Darwin Day, Mm -hmm. and yet Darwin uh, gets all these podcasts about him, and Wallace sort of seems to be the guy that's a little sidelined. Sarah, why... Why, in your opinion, why isn't Wallace as famous as Darwin, and how much of the credit does this younger man deserve?
3: Yeah, I th- so my my feeling on this is it it comes down to two things. Uh, I think one is this difference um, in class and education played a serious role. Darwin was already respected; he was already of the scientific intelligentsia class, so he already had that kind of access um, and I think this, the second thing is is the fact that Darwin had fleshed it out much more completely um, at the point that Wallace had the idea and then Wallace just dropped it he just said oh good Darwin's gonna do it I don't have to worry about it there's you know a couple places where he's quoted having saying I was relieved that I was not the guy that was gonna have to write this book um whether yeah, that and
0: deal with the fallout. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: So whether that was genuine or not, if that was just, you know, a, a Victorian sensibility, I, I kinda <laughs> yeah, doubt. I didn't it.
0: even
2: wanna I didn't even want to w- write it <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh no, I'm terrible at writing books. You, you, no, you I insist. <laughs> I've
3: written twenty two others, but not that one. Um,
2: yeah. I probably probably would have been a lot of work anyway, yeah. you know what? So it's probably for the best. <laughs>
3: But I, I kind of feel like there's so many things that we've even talked about tonight where he was so oblivious. I don't feel like that's one where he would go to a social convention of oh well, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, I kind of <laughs> think that was that was probably genuine. So I think it, to me it was probably that combination of uh, class and education which gave Darwin the advantage. The fact that he had already written so much of of his his book and then wallace just essentially acquiescing and and seemingly happily giving it to darwin um what do you guys think
2: that's that's definitely the the fleshing it out was the biggest thought i had in that you know it it, it, i think it's fascinating that wallace came up with a a near identical you know wording of Natural selection, because it, to me once again it emphasizes and partially dispels that myth that is so often portrayed that great scientific ideas come out from the rogue scientist with the the, the wacky concepts and the the out there yeah. beliefs, and that's you know even something as uh, um, revolutionary as natural selection was thought of by two scientists at the same time you know so. It's I like that, but Darwin had been collecting evidence from just about every source you could, you know, for vestigial traits and fossils and domestication and embryology. And I mean, just there really wasn't an angle he had not come at it from that you could back then. You know, so it was it's cool that Wallace came up with the idea, but Darwin basically had it already done, just hadn't moved forward with it yet. So it's not like yeah. Darwin stole the credit in any way. Right.
0: I I agree with all of these things, and then I just want to point out. <laughs> uh, Sarah mentioned Wallace sort of acquiescing to it, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned that one of the the papers he wrote on the subject after the publication of the Origin was about Darwinism. <laughs> yeah, <it>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That he yeah he very much did seem to let to to say oh yeah no mr darwin's theory like Mm -hmm. this is his and i and and i helped (laughs) but he was he was more than happy to sort of let that he didn't dar you know for all of the the humility that darwin had in many respects he also wanted to be the guy who introduced this to the world
3: oh yeah oh yeah
0: he he may not have wanted all the attention he got for it but that notoriety you know being known as the person you know for for the work that he did
2: Uh, exactly
0: and and i i it wouldn't surprise me if part of that you know when darwin was traveling around the world it really was mostly for Mm self-gratification you know he it's for he's having fun he's learning things whereas wallace was much more business-minded and wallace was much more like yeah, learning's cool and writing books is great, <laughs> but I also need to eat yes. and make mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. which was some so, so perhaps, and I haven't read very deeply into Wallace, but it wouldn't surprise me if part of the mindset was, you know, yes, let those scientists do their their writings. I need to go back to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sort of prov- hindered him from, from what otherwise may have been going deeper into sort of, vying for for the spotlight mm-hmm. there
2: well, and you know we we referred to them both as you know the the atypical renaissance men uh earlier but even with that like darwin was much more focused it seems just mm-hmm. like got on a topic and was like all right i'm going to figure out everything about this topic that can be figured out well wallace did a seemed to have a, a many more focuses and interests mm-hmm. and uh, which is both are awesome, but if you're going to create a you know huge concept, you you need to be working at it for 20 years, as he said in his letter.
3: Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you lo- you look at Darwin, right? And he spent like eight years on barnacles. So like, this is a man yeah. who has some focus. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. And for very much that reason, uh, both fascinating individuals. Uh, if I want a movie about either one of them. It's Wallace, yes, yeah. because it seems like every several years of that guy's life was something cool exactly. or terrible yep. or controversial. Yeah. Darwin spent eight years on barnacles. Yeah, yeah. like we—I don't need a movie about no. that. I want to see a movie about. <laughs> wallace accidentally hanging out with
2: white supremacists
3: (laughs) (laughs) i mean we've got house flipping we've got tropical adventures we've got disease we've got ghosts i mean there's a
0: whole trilogy here (laughs) sarah this has been a lot of fun thank you so much for joining us
3: thanks for having Uh, me once
0: again this was this was really good listeners if you, there is the potential for a tradition here <laughs> <laughs> there are there are other people we could talk about i was actually going to ask you sarah if so we did darwin and we mm-hmm, did wallace yep. and those are kind of the classics if you were going to suggest a name for for future darwin day episodes Ooh. who would you i know i know a couple of names that yeah. come to my mind
3: um so i i can think backwards and forwards um so uh, backwards, I think I would think about um, Humboldt would be fun because he was mm-hmm. kind of the the first adventurer naturalist. Um, uh, just, yeah, that guy's fascinating and inspired both of them. Um, you know, we could, uh, Huxley is fun, right? How he was yeah. Darwin's <laughs> uh, bulldog and how really he was, you know, oh, yeah. the hype man, right? The whole reason like things got out there. Um, and then you know you could jump forward, say to something like um, what we call now the modern synthesis when we finally figured out how genetics worked. And so there's a few um, players in that time that that you could kind of pull out. So those are a few that come well, that, to my mind.
2: That's the next three years.
3: There we go. Done. <laughs> Got
0: it. Well, and I thought the name that I was going to add to that is Lamarck.
3: Oh, true. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Would be yeah. a lot of fun yeah. to compare and contrast. <laughs>
0: Well, our listeners know what to do. Uh, make if, your demand if you like this. Yeah <laughs> if if we if we get requests to do more sort of Darwin Day themed episodes or more people sort of instrumental in the the development of evolutionary theory or as always anything you can think of yeah. um, will do it. So we can't. Uh, I I always hesitate to make long term promises. <laughs> But I certainly hope that this isn't the last time we see Sarah on the podcast.
3: I hope so as well. I love talking with you guys.
0: No, this has been tons (laughs) of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. What are you doing for Darwin Day?
3: Ooh, man. I don't know. We haven't made plans yet. We haven't uh, planned our uh, events at campus yet. So we got to get on it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that we have exhausted our Wallace stores for this episode. (laughs) So we'll wrap it up. As always, uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank Mm -hmm. you to the folks who recommended this subject. It turned out to be... We learned a lot. Guest episodes are great because Will and I get to sit here and learn.
2: (laughs) It's just getting a private lecture, basically.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, as always, to our patrons. Find us on the social medias. Check out the blog post that we will write uh, following up this episode. Join us in a fortnight. For the next episode of the podcast, which will be an extinction episode mm-hmm. because it is an episode that ends in a five. So be ready for that. It's going to get depressing. <laughs> it's a
2: special episode back to back.
0: Back to back. And just we got things planned.
2: <laughs>
0: but I think that's it for now. We will sign off with our signature sign off, which is rambling into the outro music. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you again, Sarah. Thank you. And goodbye for now, everybody. See everyone.